Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and you're listening to an episode of Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Sharvon Bailey on the show. Sharvon is an, an assistant professor of biology at Grinnell. I um, audited a lot of biology classes when I was at Grinnell. I graduated in 1984, and I became fascinated uh, with it. Some of your predecessors were actually my teachers, Charvon. Um, but anyway, uh, w- welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for for inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Um, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure, sure. Well, I grew up on the East Coast. I'm from uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, which is a suburb outside of D.C. And um, I went to college in uh, Frederick, Maryland. It's, it's called Hood college and at the time it was a women's college although it although it went co-ed about 20 years ago so i graduated with a ba in um biochemistry and then i decided that i needed to take a break because i was tired of school and i wasn't (laughs) good idea (laughs) my brain needed a break (laughs) and and so um at the time, like I, so during college, like I kind of figured out, like I wanted to do research and I wanted to get a PhD, but I wasn't really sure that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I guess even then I, I, I knew that a P, getting a doctorate was like a daunting task and it was like a serious thing. So um, I ended up, um, since I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't have a driver's license at the time, <laughs> I um, I ended up moving down to Alabama to live with my dad because it was easier to get a driver's license there in Alabama. And that also gave me some time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And so the original plan was to take off one year and then one year turned into almost four years. And so the first job I got out of college was um, I was a histology technician. I know just what that is. Yeah. And I made it every minute of that job, but I decided to stay there for a year because I needed something to put on my my resume. It was my first job out of college. And then um, I moved after that, after that job was over, I quit and I moved down to Alabama to figure out my life with, you know, living with my dad. And I ended up working for my uncle and my dad, actually. Um, My uncle is a high risk OBGYN and at the time, my dad was the office manager, so I worked in that office for almost three years, and I did a lot of things. I mostly did check in, check out, answer the phone, schedule appointments. Sometimes I would go in the doc. Sometimes I would go in the rooms with the patients if they were shoulder people. I think one time they had me working up patients. I did a lot of things, <laughs> and then um, th- so that process, that time, like allowed me to just really. Um, think about what I really wanted to do as a career, because um, my dad said, you know, anybody can get a job, <laughs> but what you want is a career. Yeah. So 20-year-old me didn't understand, but years later, I, I get it, dad, I do. So, <laughs> so um, Shout out to dad. Yes. So, um, so, so then um, I ended up, um, okay, so then, hold on. I lost track. Sorry. 
You're about to enter your PhD program on betting. Yeah. So then I I decided to apply for PhD programs. And I decided, one of the schools I decided to apply to and got into was Meharry Medical College. And um, Meharry Medical College is a historically Black college and university in Nashville, Tennessee. And I applied to that program because my uncle and his two children the same uncles that I work for, right? He yeah. went to Meharry Medical College and literally like his degree was like staring in my face as I like right. was checking out pages. I was like, why didn't I check that out? I didn't know they had a PhD program. I looked online. They had a PhD program. I liked the type of research that they were doing. So I applied and I got in. Yay. Yay. And, um, uh, so in a, so in most PhD programs, the first thing that happens is you do, a ro- in addition to coursework, you do three rotations in your first year. And then after your first year, you decide what lab you want to join. And so um, it just so happened that the lab, all the labs that I, most of the labs that I was interested in um, doing rotations in were in cancer research. Um, and then I ended up joining... Um, and so the first rotation that I did ended up being the lab that I joined uh-huh. PhD in. And um, at the time he had started this new project on in breast cancer. He is not, my PhD advisor is not trained in cancer biology. <laughs> um, <laughs> he is actually trained in like microbiology and immunology. So when I joined the lab, he had just published a paper about like breast cancer. And so I wanted to work on that project. He hired a postdoc um, at the same time that I joined the lab. And so he basically trained me. And so what I ended up working on was um, breast, uh, I did breast cancer research. And I studied a, uh, what I did was I studied a more aggressive breast cancer called um, triple negative breast cancer. And um, I did, I'm a hardcore molecular biologist. So I basically delineated the mechanism by which a transcriptional repressor called slug um, induces um, motility in triple negative breast cancer cells. And that is what I did my PhD on. And um, during my PhD, I got an opportunity to be a TA for uh, for the molecular biology course that my advisor teaches to the first years. And while I was getting my PhD, I found that, wow, like I really loved interacting with the students, like more so than I did doing my actual research. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, like, and, then, and then like people were telling me that I was like really good at like teaching. And it's something that I like really enjoyed. I, I, I have to pause you. I can already tell you're really good at teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. This is funny. So, so then I ended up doing, um, so then when I graduated, I defended my dissertation. It took me a little longer to finish. It, on average, it takes about five to seven years. It took me about seven years. To finish almost uh-huh. seven years to finish my PhD, and then after that, I decided. Um, so I, I knew. Gosh, I knew that I didn't want to do like research at a research intensive institution. 
because I saw what my advisor went went through and I'm like, I don't know, like chasing after grants and writing grants all day. Yeah, that is that is what they do all day. People that, that run not, labs. Yeah. They, they're grant producing machines. That's right. that's what they, I have a friend who's a bench scientist and that's pretty much all he does is write that, grants. Yeah, exactly. Like that that's not my idea of that's not my idea of fun. Yeah. And but I really enjoyed teaching, but I didn't know like how I could like pr- pursue that. I didn't, at the time I wasn't aware of like yeah many like programs that can give me the opportunity to do more teaching. So I did a traditional postdoc. And um, what I did differently when I entered my postdoc is that I was really clear and very specific, rather aggressive about what I wanted to do <laughs> after my postdoc. I was not shy in telling anybody that I was not about to spend five to six years doing nobody's postdoc. Like I'm not doing that because yeah. um on average, I, at least in the biological sciences, if you want to be at a, a high um, ranking, you know, R01 institution, then on average, you're doing like five to six years of a, of a postdoc because you need time to yeah. get publication, high impact factor publications and the grants and all the stuff that's going to get you to the next level. Right. Yep. And I wasn't on that track because I'm like, I'm not doing nobody's. I'm not doing that for five or six years. So I was put on the, um, I got onto the training grant at my, um, at my institution. So I did my postdoc at an institution called the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I was there for three years, which is um, how long the training grant was for that supplied my salary. And um, I was really um, interested in teaching. And I, again, I was not shy about telling anybody about that fact. So the fact that I was really vocal about what I wanted to do with my career, um, people started telling me like opportunities, right? About um, about like teaching opportunities. So while I was there, I got a chance to participate in a program that basically teaches you how to teach. Right? I didn't. I was like, wow, there's there's programs that do that. That's amazing. <laughs> Woo! And, and in that program, I learned how to like write. Uh, what a teaching philosophy was and like how to write that. Cause I didn't, I was about to go on the job market. I had no clue what all that, any of that stuff was. Well, right. You were a bench scientist. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and so uh, then uh, what else? And then my last few months as a postdoc, I got my first like teaching gig um, at our sinus college, which is another small liberal arts college in, um, in Pennsylvania, yeah, and um, I uh, I was teaching one lab section to like freshman students, freshman biology students, and so um, and so I did that for my last few months as a postdoc, and I loved that. Um, at the same time, I was also applying for jobs and writing up this paper that I needed to submit so I can have my one publication in my postdoc. And side note about research stuff, my paper got accepted into, for publication for my postdoc with no revisions. Wow. Hey, which, I've never had that happen. Which like never happened. Ever. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like, no, you need to spell this word correctly. Like, yeah. Like, no. Yeah. Right. So anyways, um, after three years, like I was applying for all these jobs um, to get like teaching, um, teaching positions. 
And I ended up getting a visiting uh, faculty position at Vassar College. And uh, that one year position turned into a two year position. And mm-hmm. that, let me, let me tell you, Marshall, man, that that experience, man, just changed, completely changed the trajectory of how so my my career trajectory um because before like i after i finished my phd and my postdoc that's like 10 plus years of doing research like nonstop. Yeah. and i was burnt out i was tired i'm like i'm not doing this research business this sucks I'm, I'm, i can't i can't do it anymore <laughs> so yeah. um, so i i applied so i went i went to this that I went to Vassar, and even though I am a graduate of a small liberal arts college, I did I had no clue. After ten years of being in research intensive environments, I had no clue that there was a place where you can go and you can like teach and interact with students and like have this very close relationship with them. But then you're still expected to do research, but you're not expected to do it at this like breakneck pace. Right. There's still pressure and it's stressful, but it's it's a different kind of stress from being at an R01 institution. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've I've been at both, and I know just what you're talking about. And 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 so I was like, wow, like I had no clue that that this type of institution. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so. Um, I went, so I, I spent the first year at Vassar teaching. They hired me to teach biochemistry and molecular biology. So I did that for two years. And while I was doing that, I um, I was unsure of whether or not I wanted to pursue a tenure track position. Because again, that was not my goal to do any type of research. I just wanted to teach, like leave me alone. I just want to teach, right? And so um, when I, and, and so, um, Right before, I think my last year at, at Vassar, I decided to, um, I was going to pursue a tenure track positions that, and of course I needed a research plan because I could, and most people, when they craft a research plan, when they go out on their own, they base their, their independent work off of what they did as a postdoc. Well, my track was different. Like I, I actually, um, the lab, the labs that I was in as a postdoc, I didn't, I wasn't an expert in that in that area. And then the type of research that 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 would have the successful type of, if I had based my research off of what I did as a postdoc, it just that that type of research wasn't couldn't feasibly be done. Yeah, there was a kind of mismatch. Yeah, you yeah, couldn't at do a, it at, at yeah. a small liberal arts college because right. it costs money. Yeah, I bet it costs a lot of money. Right, that I know that like smaller liberal arts colleges don't have, right? Right. And and so um, I decided to base my research off of um, what I did as a um, PhD. Uh, yeah, because I um, I knew that like the back of my hand. I still do ten years later. <laughs> and, I mean, I dedicated almost seven years of my life to it. So. <laughs> Wow. Um, and so I decided to base my 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 initial research interest at Cornell like off of um, what I did in in my PhD, and um, and so that initial project actually was um, so I told you before like my PhD was based off of like f- delineating the mechanism by how like slug makes the cells move more yeah motility yeah motility high motility. Um, 
And um, but this time I was interested in like chemotherapeutic resistance because there had been some like correlation between the high expression levels of slug and resistance to chemotherapy. But nobody had really outlined like the mechanism of like how that happened. So um, so I that that was my like project, my overall project that I was going to work on. That's what got me the job at at Grinnell. Yeah. So then you you applied for jobs and you got a job at Grinnell. Yeah, I applied for jobs. um, I got I came for the um, they 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 called me for the phone interview and they're so excited. I I was like they were like, we're so excited. We want you to come out for a campus visit. And I started then I started to freak out because this is 2016. November 2016. Yeah. And I was just like, um, this, I started to freak. I, I knew where Grinnell was. I can do Google Maps, right? I know where. <laughs> but, like, but like, it didn't really like dawn on me. Like, dude, like, I'm, this is, this is Iowa. This is rural Iowa. Like, yeah. I don't know anything about Iowa. Are there black people in Iowa? <laughs> you know, am I going to be safe traveling to the middle of nowhere in like, you know, the, the, as a single black female, like all these, all the, I had all these questions in my head, but I calmed myself down. And I was like, all right, just give it a chance, right? Go, go with an open mind, right? Cause I don't know. I've never lived in a small town before. And, and so, um, I, I went, I went to the interview campus visit and I absolutely like, I loved it. I didn't know anything about the town, but I'm just talking about like my interactions with, my, my future colleagues and, and the conversation. Iowa nice. That's what they call it. Iowa nice. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was, it was great. Like I totally loved it and I can see myself like I, I would fit in right with, yeah. with the department and, and stuff like that. Cause that's important to me as well. Now, as far as the community, I had no clue. Cause I didn't, again, I didn't see much. Right. Of yeah. Right. Um, but I'm a fairly adaptable person, as as I am told um, by many yeah, people. I'm sure you are. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask this: um, You mentioned that the at least two of the things that professors have to do are teaching and research. How do you balance teaching and research at a place like Grinnell, which is pretty far off the map? And though they do have money to to fund yeah. research, how, where do you actually do your research? How does it work? I have a research lab and I have wow. my research lab space <laughs> right at, at the college. And um, they gave me a fairly decent, you know, um, decent startup. Um, and it these was, things cost money. I think people need to know yeah. that. that you can, yeah, it ain't free. Yeah. Especially it's like, not like go to the library and read some books. Especially molecular biology. I mean, yeah. research is expensive, but molecular biology is one of the most like expensive uh, yeah. expensive areas of, of biology to like buy things in. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah. So I had that, a friend actually, sorry to interrupt. I had a friend who did something like this and he would go buy equipment on eBay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, I think so. Because <laughs> so, it was cheaper. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Um, so, yeah. So I ended up um, like the, there's this, um, oh, this, Oh, this young, this young woman. She's a, uh, she's, she's amazing. My, 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 my lab would not function without her. Please don't retire, Carolyn Bossy. Um, <laughs> shout out to Carolyn Bossy. She's amazing, and yeah. um, 
she helped me like she knows where all the deals are for 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 um for supplies and stuff so right. she, this is the thing that my friend said is that you yeah. you have a budget and you can't exceed the budget and so you got to go find all this stuff yeah you got to go find all this yeah. stuff so before I came, I like made a spreadsheet of like all of the supplies that I needed. And I tried to look for like cheaper things like online. But the thing is, is that the, the institution has, has, has relationships with vendors where they can get discounted prices. Yeah. And so they, they sign in to using their special passwords. So the, the prices that they see are going to be slightly different from yeah. what, what I've seen by just going on the, the website. Right. So, right. So, so the college helped you build this lab, and so you can actually do your research in the middle of Iowa. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they actually have because I, I have a my own lab. I have I, I my model system is like cell culture, which is also expensive because the cells are finicky, and um, and the incubator. So all of that stuff. That's um, good. They That's good. they have what I need to do, um, so I can do my research. So let's talk a little bit about your research. Um, you study uh, non-small cell lung cancer. I think people know what lung cancer is. Yes, yes. Uh, they do. It's a deadly cancer. And um, just by way of preface to orient people, um, you, and tell me if any of this is wrong, mm -hmm. you're essentially developing chemotherapies. And as I understand it, one of the problems with chemotherapies is they're not well targeted. Well, I'm not. I'm not developing like chemotherapies per se. Like, I'm. I'm develop. I would. I don't know if the right word is development, but I am working on trying to develop, I guess, better combination therapies, right? Which with which to treat um, this type of cancer. Mm -hmm. And trying to, and then on top of that, okay, so once we find out, okay, this combination works, well, how is it working? Like, what's the mechanism? Yeah, this the mechanism. That's an important word. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that my understanding of chemotherapy is that it's not generally well targeted, or at it's least not. it hasn't been. And right. so essentially, when you give someone chemotherapy, you kill the cells that you want to kill, but you also kill a lot of other cells. And this makes people very sick. And so then the, the kind of end goal is to produce therapies that just target cancer cells, in this case, non-small lung cancer cells. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So can we drill down into a little bit exactly how this is done? How, can you talk a little bit about what you're actually working on that kills these cells and how it targets the cells? Well, Maybe that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm not. I, I can, I can talk. I can answer one part of your question. Um, not, we're. St I'm still working on like, like the general mechanism of like how it actually like kills the cells. We have some ideas, but we haven't done any experiments to like either prove or disprove. You know, the, but we already know that it does it. So you're really working on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I like I, this word mechanism, like the chemical mechanism by which the cell croaks. Yeah. So like, so like, I already know like that it that the single that the agent that so the so the type of targeted therapy um, that I'm working with is called certanol, and so certanol is an enzyme is an enzyme inhibitor, and it inhibits a body of enzymes called sirtuins, and there's seven there's seven sirtuins in mammals, and certanol it inhibits um, certs one and two. Okay, um, both of which are 
one one study showed that both of these enzymes are overexpressed in in um, in, in non small cell um, cancer cancer cells as opposed to like the normal cells and um, and so um, what we have what I've shown already is that sertanol um, is toxic to some of these cell lines, some of these non-small cell cancer cell lines that I'm working with. Uh, it's toxic at like 20, at 24 hours. Um, so um, that's what we have shown. And because this, the specific area of race, the general area of cancer biology that I'm working with, uh, that my collaborator is working at the University of Iowa is called Redox Biology. So um, there, there is some literature out there that suggests that certanol kills the cells through a redox-mediated mechanism, but nobody knows the like specifics of it. Like all the experiments are just very general in nature, and frankly, I think the proof is very weak. <laughs> um, and and so right now I'm trying to figure out like how like how is certanol killing the cells as a single agent, and then I'm also um, seeing if um, it works in combination with pharmacological ascorbate, which is essentially a, a type of um, type of agent that is, I think it's used, is currently used in some clinical trials to treat lung cancer in combination with um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's also... Well, hmm? I was going to say, let me take just a step back. So essentially what you're trying to do and this is going to be very crude, is you're trying to defeat defenses that certain cells have that have been evolved over hundreds of millions of years and are very common so that you can kill them. Because this inhibits the production of something that might kill a cell. And so then the cell itself, its defenses being defeated by certain all, then it dies. Yeah. So, so if, so if the, so yes, that's part of it. So if defenses, so if, so if you like, um, well, I could just interrupt for a second. One of the things I I remember from cell biology is cells have tons of defensive mechanisms. Yes. Tons. Like one of the things that they'll do very commonly is kill themselves. Like Mm -hmm. if something goes wrong in replication at any number of like six times, the cell will just die. Yeah. Apoptosis. Yeah, right. They just croak because so. this one isn't right. And so right. cells have all these defensive mechanisms, yeah. including cancer cells. They have them too. Cancer cells are have even more defense. Oh, great. They, they, I, I, I say uh, they, don't, they don't die. They multiply. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. because so, cancer is essentially the uncontrolled reproduction of a certain kind of cell. Yeah, like that, the, the that, on switch is always on. Yeah, it's always on. Like that. that is a very... It's more complex than that. I actually oh, like- I'm sure it is. <laughs> but, but it's, yes, for simplistic terms, that is the general definition of, of, of cancer. And so, um, and so another, speaking of like cell growth, right? Um, we have not, so the research that I've done so far not only shows that certanol as actually cytotoxic to these cells, right? But it also reduces the cell number. It reduces replication. Yes, it reduces. Well, that's the a trick. 
Yeah, so it's something, so something is happening there. Um, and so, um, whew, so right now we're trying to figure out how certanol induces um, oxidative stress in the cell. Yeah. So, um, so just at, at some point, and, and again, I remember this also from biology and other things, is that at some point, biology becomes chemistry. And it seems yeah. like in your research, that it really like you're yes. down to the chemical level. Yeah, like you've got to know a lot of chemistry here to do it. You got to know a lot of chemistry, and and um, so so now my research is kind of switched from like molecular biology to more like cell biology, chemistry, and biochemistry. Right. Yeah. Because so, this is absolutely essential, and I really love this word mechanism because literally the the sort of set of steps that leads to cell death and you're trying to figure that out right on a chemical level yes that yeah. sounds on hard a, yeah, more like not only on a um i wouldn't say on a on a chemical level but more on like a on like a cell on like a cell biology on, on like a cell bio on a cellular and like a biochemical um level I yeah say. Yeah, I see. So, is uh, we talked about targeting before? Um, mm -hmm. Does how do you target certain all toward cancer cells versus healthy cells? Is is that part of your research, or how does that happen? Yeah, yeah, actually, the way to do that is to do an experiment, which I plan to do. So, 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 <laughs> so, 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 so the way to do that on a in a dish, like testing cells in a dish, is you you would basically take, um, so I've already treated cancer cells in a dish with certanol and gotten the dose response curve for that. Meaning like- and We should probably say that you have to buy these cancer cells, right? There are like a line yeah. item in them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like, I know. There are cancer cell providers. <laughs> yes, there, there, there are several um, repositories yes. um, that exist around the world and in the country that, that right. you can buy. Right. So you cancers. bought the cancer cells and you got them in a dish. Yeah. And so you, 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 you get them in a dish and you basically feed them, right? They require growth factors and media, which contains like yeah. metabolites, right? So that they can like function, right? Yeah. And, and, um, and so, and then you have to take care of them. They're like babies, right? You can't just leave and be like, I'm going on vacation for two weeks and expect yeah, yourself. Yeah, I, I know about this because my kids are doing slime molds. We're trying to keep slime alive. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, um, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. So, um, well, the question is basically how, how, how is it, how do you show that certain all has a preference for or can be targeted to oh, okay. cancer that, cells versus healthy cells? That is an easy question. That is a simple experiment, actually. So the way to do that is that you would basically buy uh, normal lung cancer cells. And so the fancy name for normal lung cells are called human bronchial epithelial cells, also known as HBECs. If you don't feel like saying that every single time. Yeah, I don't. And, no. and, and so and so you would treat you would basically treat HBECs with certanol, right? And you and you would treat the um, cancer cells with 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 certanol, right? 
And after you get the results and do the dose response curve, right? If, if Certanol specifically targets, um, if Certanol specifically targets cancer cells and not the normal cells, then, then you should see, then, then for example, at like higher doses, right? As you increase the dose, as you expose the, the normal cells to, um, higher doses of drug, you should expect to see like minimal, minimal amounts of killing, right? As opposed to cancer cells, right? That are treated with the drug. As you increase the dose, you expect to see like a gradual, like a gradual decline. Yeah. Yeah. And have have, have you, you haven't done this experiment yet, so you can't give us the. I have not done this experiment yet. I actually, I actually did do it, but I apparently I did it incorrectly. So, um, <laughs> well, that's the other thing about experimental sciences is that, yeah, yeah yes. there's so a lot I, of places where you can make a mistake. Yeah, because I showed so, and that aspect will make me more sympathetic to my students. Like when I get back, I'm like, I made all these mistakes during my sabbatical, like, and I've been oh, doing yeah. this. For- I, I'm 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 a hundred percent behind this because like intellectual humility is like if you don't have it, you're sunk. Uh, there's been a lot of that happening yeah you and me both (laughs) (laughs) so um the the steps toward a therapy you're doing what i think i would call and correct me if i'm wrong basic science yes i'm doing basic science. right yeah, yeah right basic science and so then your findings will be handed off to therapeutic companies or they will be so exactly what is the set of steps from basic science to a therapy so first of all let me preface this by saying that i i am not a translational scientist so what i'm about to tell you is based is that what they're called translational sciences yeah okay all right yeah like translational research or like clinical research um I am not that type of um, scientist. And so what I'm about to tell you is based on like limited knowledge of that area of science. See, more more intellectual humility. That speaks very (laughs) well of you. I like that. (laughs) So so like from, but from a general, like a general standpoint, right? um, Within academia, I can only talk about stuff within academia. So like the first step would be, okay, we're doing the work in cells. Right. Does it does it work? Is this therapy like effective in cells? Right. In the dish. In the dish. Okay. And then the next step would be, okay, well, does this effect happen in, you know, in mice? Ah, yeah. Mice. And the interesting thing. And And you can buy mice online, too. Yeah. And so the interesting (laughs) thing about like doing mouse studies is that if you combine your basic research and you have mouse studies, you can get into a higher impact factor journal. I see. Um, and then, and then also, and then after you do that, then, then you got to go through the, the, the steps to get it into, there's like lots of red tape and stuff you got to go through to get it to actually yeah. like clinical trials and like people. Yeah. A lot of us are familiar with this from the COVID experience. We learned all about clinical trials and such. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm just doing very like basic. So, 
Yeah. So at, at what point are you completely forgotten <laughs> in all of this? <laughs> like you did the basic science, but at some point it's like your name just disappears. Right, right. Um, I'll probably be, I don't know, I'll probably, well, I don't know, like my collaborator, he does have collaborators with, um, collaborations with, um, like clinical, like clinical scientists or people who are doing research in the clinic. Yeah. So, so I see, I see what you're saying. Yes. Well, that, that sounds, yeah, it sounds like, um, very interesting work, if not it in, in the sense that you can't call up your granddad and say, I cured cancer, <laughs> which would be fun. No, <laughs> but you can say, I, I'm working on curing cancer. I you mean, can say I'm that. working <laughs> on making like better, like better treatments yeah. for, 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 yeah. you know, cancer therapies. Yeah. Yeah. I see. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for explaining that very clearly. Actually, I think I understand all of it. Um, I could actually tell someone what you do, I think. So <laughs> let me ask you this. You said early on in our in our wonderful conversation, which I'm enjoying very much, that at some point um, in the PhD track or on the postdoc, you decided you didn't want to devote your entire life to grant writing <laughs> and you wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. And how do you like teaching at Grinnell? I like it. I like it a lot. I, um, I've, I've learned a lot. By uh, not only about like the subject matter that that I'm teaching because I talk about it all the time. Oh but, yeah. But I also have learned a lot about like teaching pedagogy and how to relay the information to my students in a way that they can understand it. Um, and so I have grown ever since I've been at Grinnell for five years, and I've I've grown a lot like as 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 a teacher. Um, and just being able to like learn, like also like learn from my colleagues and stuff like that. I mean, I think one of the things that people don't appreciate, or maybe they do appreciate, I don't know, but like when you come out of a PhD program or a postdoc, you're so focused on your very narrow research and then they throw you into a classroom and say, teach biology 101. Right. They're like, I forgot biology. I can't, what? I got to go back and relearn all that stuff. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that, I think that, that was um, like a, a, a challenge, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I found it to be a great challenge. Yeah. So um, like, cause I was, yeah, I was very narrowly focused and then all of a sudden I had to teach these survey classes and it was difficult. Well, the, the, the one, I think the one class that I struggled with the most was, um, uh, gosh, what was that class? So the intro course that they teach at Cornell, the intro to biology course is like all about the process of science and like, teaching yeah. first right. years how to do science and you know it was a challenge for me because no one ever no one ever like walked me through like how to write a paper or how to think like like these all these skills that I'm literally standing up in front of the class like telling them how to do I learned just by doing on the job yeah <laughs> you learned on the job yeah <laughs> And and, yeah. and and so it was a challenge for me to figure out how I was going to relay information to 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 students that 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 I'd never been taught my, myself. Right, right. So you never articulated out. yourself. You just knew how to do it. I it's like trying. Well, it's like trying to explain someone how to ride a bicycle without riding a bicycle. 
Well, here's what you do. You get on the bicycle, then you put your foot on the pedal. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's hard to explain to someone how to ride a bicycle. You have to show them how to ride the bicycle. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so how you like, learned. Yeah. So it's just, but yeah, I mean, I really, uh, I really enjoy um, like teaching at Grinnell. Um, one of, one of the things that I liked about, especially teaching like the upper level course, cause I teach molecular biology. And so we're encouraged to incorporate our research into like the upper level courses. Sure. So like, you know, if a student takes a cl- takes molecular biology with me, right. It may, it's, it may be different from like, if they take it with like, you know, another one of my colleagues. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I had exactly the same experience at Grinnell when I was there. I, my, um, my mentor was a guy named Dan Kaiser. I don't know if you ever met him. He was in the history department and he studied the, the history of Russian law. And so as I advanced, uh, he had me doing the history of Russian law. I mean, he was doing active research and I was helping him do this. And I, I thought it was just great. I, I was really like, oh, look, I'm contributing. <laughs> I wasn't curing cancer, but I was, I was learning something about Russian law. So I think that's one of the aspects of uh, Grinnell in particular is, is that as you advance through the curriculum and you, you, you become a second, third, fourth year, you get to actually help the professors with their research. And that, that's very rewarding. Yeah. That's- yeah. My, my, I'm, I'm working with a student right now and he's been very helpful <laughs> thus far. Yeah. And do, what do you tell your suit? I, I'm very interested in this and it may be kind of an unfair question. My understanding is, is that careers in the bench sciences are extraordinarily hard that like, you've got to be kind of insane to even try one because <laughs> I mean, really like, uh, it, it, the, I, again, I have this friend who has a lab and he's like, it's just so hard and most people it, don't make it. It is. Yeah. What, what do you tell I mean, your students about this? Yeah. I mean, if they want to go into research. Yeah. I mean, they ask questions. I tell them, you know, the the the, the truth. I'm like, if you want to go into academia, it's 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 a challenging career, and sometimes you don't you don't get what you want because I mean, yeah. I know plenty of like. Um, I know plenty of people who are like super postdocs and they have these extraordinary resumes and all the type of stuff and they they don't have position. They don't. It's so right. This is, yeah. Right. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about is that, is that it's really very hard. I mean, and in a weird sense, science is sort of underfunded in that way. Although, you know, it is the case that the NIH and stuff have bazillions of dollars. It still right. doesn't seem to be enough. No, but I think I think the market the market is so um, saturated with like postdocs, right? Yeah, and they all want to go into um, into academia, and there's like you know the, a, a very limited amount of positions um, available. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly my understanding as well. So, and here's another question: So, is it possible, like for example, when you finished your postdoc, could you have gone into industry? Could you gone and worked for a pharmaceutical company or something like I that? Could, Were there, are there that. such opportunities? Yeah. yeah. I, and there I, are plenty. Of, are there plenty of jobs there for people? In, in industry. Um, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I, I honestly have no, no idea. I, but it would seem to me that a pharmaceutical company would want somebody like you. <laughs> I, think, I think I think there are like plenty of plenty of um, opportunities in in industry. I don't know how like competitive it is 
But yeah. I think to get into industry, it's like one of those catch twenty two, like, oh, you need a PhD plus like experience, but like you can't really get a foot in the door unless you have experience, but you need the job to get experience. So right. <laughs> so yeah, right. Yeah, um, great. But I mean that is the the well, that is the that's, issue. That's the deal. Yeah, that is the deal. But as I say, I, I just have one friend who runs a lab and and he doesn't do very much but write grants. He doesn't get yeah. to do any of the research himself. He oh, has yeah. all of these postdocs who do it and yeah. he's very worried about his postdocs. Yeah. What Basically, they're gonna do. At, at yeah. that point, you know, you are you are truly a manager of people, projects, and money. Yeah. And and, and I will say that that is what I do to a certain extent, right? But it's on a it's on a smaller scale, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. I manage people in my lab and in the classroom, but I also manage money and the projects in my lab, and yeah. I don't. And my salary is basically secure. Yeah. Well, that's good for you. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I learned a ton. And I, th I think I can say with great confidence that Grinnell is very lucky to have you. And I'm sure you are actually a great teacher. Um, so uh, let me tell everybody that this has been the Grinnell College Authors and Artists podcast. And um, I hope that you tune in next time. Thanks very much.